Open up your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. We've been in the book of James now for several weeks. Um, you have a bulletin in, uh, in front of you, hopefully, and there's some sermon notes in there if you want to follow along, doodle. I would encourage you, as Ben already did, to write down um, just what it is that are action items for you throughout the, throughout the message. Um, there's a fundamental truth that exists in life, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist just in the church. In fact, really, all truth is God's truth. So if it exists, uh, it's God's truth. But, uh, but we see this showing up in many sectors of life. And here's, here's the truth, that only belief paired with action really matters. Only belief that is paired with action really matters. The rest is just hot air. Now, this shows up really clearly in some places, and it's a little bit harder to find in other places. Let me take you to the plains of Africa for a second. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up, and this gazelle knows something. It must run faster than the fastest lion, or else it'll be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up, and it knows something. It must run faster than the slowest gazelle, or it's going to go hungry, starve, and die. Now, two morals to this little story, okay? Here it is. Here's the first one. doesn't matter if you're a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. Okay, that's, that's the first one. Here's the second one, that belief alone won't save you. You could be a gazelle that believes you're faster than the, than the fastest lion, but if you sit there and just talk about it and brag about it to your other gazelle mates, I don't know what you call them, um, you're going to be lunch, right? That's just the way that goes. Here's what we're looking at today. Today is another one of those passages that is at the crux of James. If you want to boil James down to a few key passages this is another one of those that gets at the very heart of everything James is pointing to is wrapped up in what we're about to hear. He talks about this as kind of a basic thesis. Show your faith by your actions. If you think of James months from now, I hope what comes back to you is this. James is a book of action. James is a book that is calling me to put my faith into action. We already looked at be doers of the, the word, not just hearers. And this whole series title is Do or Your Faith is Dead. If you aren't doing, if you aren't active, if you aren't engaged, then you have a dead faith. That's the message of James. That's what he's telling us. Um, we're going we're gonna to read this passage again. I know, I know Ben just read it, but we're going we're gonna to listen to it again. And I want you to look at it. I want you to follow along and, and read with me. James uh, 2, starting in verse 14, says this, What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We're going to stop there. Just like a couple weeks ago, the last two weeks have been really a continuing idea of James about favoritism and partiality. He called it sin. He said, stop it. It's evil. It should not be existing in our churches. And we called it out. For two weeks we looked at it. This week and next week, I would say in some ways it's a continuing idea of that. Now do it. Don't just... Don't just understand the principle. Put these things into practice. Next week's going to be a continuation of this week because really it's one kind of big idea, but we're going to, we're going to break it up into two weeks because there's so much here. This section gets at the heart of Christianity, which, which then I would say gets at the heart of life and what, and what the world's about. And, and that's why it's a very oft-quoted verse and, and passage. Um, it really looks at the nature of salvation. I'm going, to, I'm going to draw out a couple of opening thoughts about salvation, faith, and works. And part of why it's such a giant passage is because it deals with the very heart, the very nature of salvation and faith and works and how those all play a part. Now, some of you already know this, but this passage has caused some major controversy over the centuries for Christians. They've argued about it and dialogued about it and all kinds of things. I would say this, that contextually understood, if you understand this passage correctly and the book correctly and who it's being written to and all that sits there, it's not controversial at all. But sometimes people, as they've learned to read the Bible, they've learned to do something. They've learned to take a verse and say, see, right there it says this. 
And if you take an accumulation of your words this past week, and you were to take out something that you said, and you were to just quote that, your kids could make you say all kinds of things, couldn't they, parents, right? No, 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 you said. Uh, Yeah, but there was a don't in front of that, right? I mean, that's the simple example. So in taking this and in understanding it, there really is no controversy. And we're not going to dive into any of that. We may get into some of it next, next week. But the bottom line is this. Much of it has been from people not reading God's word carefully, not giving it careful thought. Instead of pulling back and looking at the ideas and themes of Scripture and saying, this is the message, this is the story God's telling, they're looking to proof text, which is to take a text and support their line of reasoning or idea. Now, lest we think that this is out there, them doing this, we all have the potential of doing this. And one of the things you do on a Sunday morning when you come to church is you're learning how to read the Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really true. As we worship, we learn how to worship as we engage in it. One of the things Ben was challenging us to do just there is that we can learn and be spoken to by God in the lyrics of a song. That's part of worship. And we learn that by engaging in it and by doing it. As we open the scriptures on Sunday mornings and gather together, we're learning how do I read the Bible when I'm, when I'm sitting at a coffee shop on Tuesday afternoon. How do I look at that? How do I read it? And that's some of the things I'm, I'm hoping to do. Let me pull back and give you kind of the big picture story because I want a foundational truth to, to, to be said really crystal clear for us so that we can move on to, to some, some other things. Here's one, of the, here's one of the big ideas we see in Scripture, that we are born infected with sin, and we do our best, but our best is never good enough. We strive and strive and then strive some more, but it never quite satisfies, even if we reach our goals. We feel the ecstasy of love only to turn around and wreck it by our own mistakes. And sometimes that pattern happens over and over. I just heard last night that a a family member of mine is on marriage number five. Devastating. And we see this over and over. We think this time it's right. This time is the one. I know it'll be different this time. In the world, we see that which is noble sitting right next to that which is wicked. And we see both of those lined up. We long for it to all be different, but we see attempts by governments, by money, by philanthropy, by people's goodwill and good intentions and super hard work all fall short to rectify that which is wicked and that which is noble and righteous. The Bible comes along and says that God promises and then provides total deliverance, not only in this life, but for the wrath to come for all of the penalty of sin. Both the sin that is out there, all the wickedness and evil that we see, and then the reality hits and lands on us pretty heavy that the the wickedness is in our own heart. It's in our own thoughts. Somebody should really be doing something about that wickedness. What's on TV? And we pull back in a moment of clarity and say, wow, what was that? That's, that's, that's wickedness in here in my own intentions. Nothing has ever been or will ever be our hope for a right relationship from Christ apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and him rising from dead. I want you to hear that crystal clear so that we don't get confused by any message that we're saying by taking a little chunk of Scripture and landing on it for a half hour, 40 minutes or so, and then working, working kind of a theology out of that. Your hope is based on nothing else except the shed blood of Christ and his righteousness. The perfect life that he lived that you and I could never possibly live. The death that he lived that rightfully is ours. If you want justice for it, it's our death to die and Jesus dies for us. And the righteousness that he possesses as the very son of God, he credits to us even though we don't deserve it. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we preach and stand on and what we're so excited about as Christians. Now that is the story that we as Christians find ourselves in and we respond by following Jesus. We follow Jesus in this life. Whoever claims to live in him, Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. Boiled down Christianity, there it is. Find out how Jesus lived, who he loved, how he served, and do it. If he goes somewhere, you follow. If he stays in somewhere, you stay with him. We also are going to follow him one day to death. And here's the beauty of, the, re- of, of the, the Christian picture. We follow him into the resurrection, right? Into new life. And that's the picture of a Christian is that they follow Jesus. Now, faith and works play a, 
play a part in every single Christian's experience. And what we're going to look at this morning and what this passage talks about a little bit is how those two kind of work together. Let's take faith for just a minute. Biblical faith has several aspects. Doctrine, personal commitment, and relationship to Jesus Christ, and lifestyle. We're not going to talk much about doctrine or personal commitment. We're going to look more at the the lifestyle part. But all three of these are present and evident in genuine, mature faith. Now, when you first become a Christian, how does your lifestyle reflect that of Christ? Not much, probably, right? It's fantastic to hear people who are brand new Christians in here and say, well, I know that, uh, you know, I know that I'm not supposed to do this. And I go, yeah, yeah, that would be really, really good to stop doing, actually. I don't think I've ever read Jesus doing that. You should probably stop that. And what's so cool is to see a Christian could be a Christian 24 years and you're still finding those kinds of things, right? You lop off the giant rough edges in the first year or two and you just go, wow, I probably should stop doing that. For me, I mean, here was a real simple one. I was a junior in high school. I had been raised in the church every other week, so I kind of knew what, what, what was right and what to do. God had always given me a tender heart toward him. But at age 17, he pulled the, the blinds back. I started to follow Jesus. You know, one of the first things I did, students, here, here it was, ready? I should probably stop cheating. It just seems like the right thing to do. (laughs) Now, I wasn't a rampant cheater. I was actually a pretty good student, but I was lazy. So it was easier to just cheat on certain things. And that was just a really clear thing that I thought, huh, I've always kind of known that's wrong, but I need to stop doing that now. And that began a life of, and guess what? I still discover things. And I hope that Christians who've been Christians longer and I've been alive in this room, you're still discovering things. Because that means you're still walking with the Savior being formed into his image. Now, James is writing to church people. And that's one of the really clear things in understanding this passage that you need to catch. Remember, to the Jews who are of the dispersion. I am writing to church people who have been dispersed by persecution. Now, now that's, that's the audience. And that's, that's important to, to keep in mind. James wants a, a truth to land with so much force kind of in a room that it just stops the polite Christian chit-chat that kind of goes on sometimes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, brother? I'm good. Hallelujah. That kind of stuff that just kind of goes on. He comes in and he just wants this truth to kind of land and shut up the mouths of people who are just chit-chatting as Christians and who are just kind of gathered at potlucks and who are just kind of there doing things. You're going to see in a, in a second, I think he accomplishes his goal. He gives kind of this one-two punch. He asks two questions, um, and I would say as Christians today, these are good questions to ask ourselves. As disciples who are following Jesus today, we ought to ask ourselves these same two questions. Now, remember we talked a while about, about, about looking into a mirror and about being doers of the word and not hearers. One of the things you do as you look into a mirror is you do it daily, hopefully, right? When you're on vacation, you get a free pass. But daily, you're looking into the mirror, As you look into that mirror, you're looking intently for things that need correcting, for things that need to change. If all you ever do is sit and look at the mirror like the Fonz and admire yourself, you need to have someone smack you upside the head and say, change. You know, you're like, hey, don't do that. We're looking into the scriptures not just to affirm the things we like in ourselves, but to look and say, what needs to change? God, what do you want to grow in me? So as we hear these words, as we hear these words spoken to us, let's look to correct what's wrong or off in our life. Here's one of the questions he asks. What good is spoken faith that isn't lived out? Real simple, real direct. What good is it? What good is spoken faith that's never lived out? We said at the, at the top, if you're a gazelle or a, or a lion, you're just dead. It's just hot air. It doesn't mean anything, actually. It's actually good for nothing. The second question he asks is this, can that faith really save someone? Do you see why this suddenly quiets all the church folk? Because they're like, wait a minute, now, we're, now you're stepping on my toes. Now here's what, here's what I, bet you, I bet some of you are experiencing. And I think as I read this, you can almost, you can almost feel the defensiveness come on some Christians. And they're taking their, you know, their little spiritual shotgun, they're loading shells in it. And they're, they're putting in these kinds of truths, okay? Um, hey, we're saved by grace alone. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And they're just, they're just loading up for an argument here as James asks this question. But here's what I would see. If James asked that question in a group of polite Christians, 
And people are loading up for their argument to fight back with propositional truth and say, wait a minute. It almost, it almost as you pull back as an observer and you witness this going on, it almost proves the point for you. Because I think to myself this, if some people who immediately want to jump into a lengthy discussion slash argument about all the doctrinal truths about how they're saved by all these different things, if they took even a shred of the energy and the intentionality and the follow-through and the zeal that they've put into that argument into actually administering justice and mercy and, admi- and, and embracing that as part of their praise of God, it would, it would totally be a game-changer for them. But so many are content to just argue and just put out what they believe. James believes firmly. Hear this. James believes firmly in salvation by faith alone. But he also believed just as firmly that saving faith shows up in good deeds. Now, here's the nature of works a little bit. We'll we'll, we'll talk about this. One commentator said this. I thought it was worth repeating. Good works cannot produce salvation, but salvation most certainly produces good works. That's said really succinctly. Right, that good works will never produce your salvation. Otherwise, you would earn it. It would strip it from being merciful. It would strip it from being the grace of God, a free gift. It'd be payment for something. Trust me, you don't want God paying you for what you can offer him. It will always be not to your favor to go down that path. We want that a lot. That's not fair. We all learned that about age four, right? Some of us still do that to God. So, good works cannot produce salvation, but, cer- but salvation most certainly produces good work. James goes on to, to answer the hypothetical objector who, who throws out his yeah buts, right? And there's all kinds of yeah buts that we do with the Bible. We're reading, we go, yeah, but this, yeah, but that. Here's one of the yeah buts that, that he's, he's um, projecting is going to come back to him. Look, some people specialize in theology and faith and some are really good with their hands and in actually doing things. And I'm just in the earlier camp. I'm one of those who specializes in really understanding the faith and, 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 and those kind of things. Flip in your Bible. You can leave your finger there, but flip in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. 1 Corinthians 13 is a uh, pretty well-known passage of Scripture. I want you to follow along with me as I read verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all, what's the word? Faith. So as to remove mountains. Stop there for a minute. If you possess all of that, you think you're doing pretty good, Christian. You're the all-star. I mean, you get put up in front of the church for testimony time if you're doing all of that. But it goes on. But have not love, I am nothing. James and Paul agree. You aren't let off the hook if you are knowledgeable about things. It has to translate into things. James would, the, the positively stated command... to to not showing favoritism from the whole first part of this chapter 2 is quite simply love one another, right? It's the royal law he was talking about. If you fulfill the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself, you're golden, you're good. Problem is, that's not happening. So all these good things, faith so as to remove mountains without works. Paul sounds an awful lot like James there. One without the other is... Dead. Now, that's a pretty strong language. It's very James-like to use black and white language in his discussion of things. He doesn't mince words. He gets right to the point of things. Faith without works is dead. Now, those, that's pretty clear talk when you're talking about what saves your life, not dead things. Dead things don't ever save you, right? And if you take faith and you take works and you remove one of those, look at this gear on the screen right now. What happens if one of those is missing? You don't go anywhere. You're stuck. You're dead in the water, right? You're not going to move. Don't you see, too, how one kind of powers the other? It's really hard to figure out which one's doing which. 
There's such interplay between your faith and your works, it's, it's, it's hard to know that. When you say, gee, Dave, I was challenged in January to read through the scriptures or to pick up a Bible and start reading the scriptures in some way on my own. Many of you have taken that challenge. It's been so fun. What month are we in? We're in July now. It's been so fun to just dialogue with you. On the city, we're having some, some chit-chat back and forth about, hey, how's it going and what are you learning? And some people are like, oh, I'm swamped. I'm super far behind. I'm just going to catch up here, whatever. But it's been so fun to see people engaged in that. What happens if you ever just wait to feel like doing the things of God's spiritual matters? You'll, you'll, you'll do what I would be doing right now. You'll be wakeboarding on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, what I feel like doing much of the time is not what I need to necessarily be doing. Twinkies and vanilla lattes are super fun to eat and drink. I don't need those often, but I want those often, right? Not really Twinkies, actually. but they're just, That's just a fun word to say. Um, Point is this, sometimes your works drives faith. Sometimes just taking a step saying, God, I'm just, I'm just going to start doing it. I don't feel like this. I don't feel like I have the faith for it. I don't feel like it's very spiritual. I'm just going to start doing it. All of a sudden, your faith catches up to that. Other times, your faith is way out in front. And you're like, wow, I should probably start doing something to catch up to it and actually start walking in that. So kind of like gears, don't get messed up with that. Don't get hung up on, well, which is, which is driving which? Don't worry about that. The bottom line truth is they better both be present and if they're not, be praying for that. He then illustrates this. James is great about illustrating. Remember with the favoritism thing? In case you're missing this, in case you spiritualize this to think that I'm talking about something else, here's what I'm talking about. If a poor person walks through that door and you count them by the world standards as nothing and you tell them to go sit over there or you don't give them the time of day, and a person of influence, a person that's, that looks like they could offer you something to raise your social status or looks like they have wealth or whatever, and you start showing preferential tr- uh, treatment to that person, it's sin. Stop it. Favoritism has no place in the church. Clear example. Concrete example. It's junior high ministry 101. Just give a concrete example of what we're talking about. Here's what James does here. He does exactly the same thing. If someone doesn't have enough clothes to be clothed, if someone is not eating today, and then you just pronounce blessing, that's missing it. That's missing it. What good is that, he says? In case we missed the point, James adds this this question, can such faith save him? Now, the way the Greek language is set up, it asks a question implying the answer. The implied answer is this, no, it cannot save him. That's the way this question is asked, and we can see that in English as well. That's why the title this morning, is, is Jesus alone the one who saves? Yes, 100% faith. Is the Jesus life, this life you're walking in, is it one of service and deeds and things that shows up in your actions and your lifestyle? 100% yes, works. They're not at battle with each other. They're fighting together on the same team. Now, in your outline this morning, uh, I put a life preserver. Now, life preserver offers three lessons for us this morning. I'm just going to give you kind of paint, paint a picture and you can kind of do with it what you will. First of all, I want you to think of this life preserver as a Christian. Now, there are at least two things that make a life preserver a life preserver. I did a little bit of study on life preservers, which is weird, because I didn't think I'd be doing that this week, but it made sense at the time. Life preservers, most of the time, I think of them as kind of a circle like this, a round one. But there's also some that are like U-shaped. You know, I think it's the Aussies. They do everything a little bit different. But, but some lifeguards have U-shaped ones, whatever else. But here's what I know about a life preserver. If you can't hang on to it, that's a bummer. That's a bad life preserver. If you can't hang on to the thing, it's a problem. Most of them are a ring. And if you ever watch those shows where they're yanking people off the, you know, coast up in Alaska from a, you know, Coast Guard chopper, I mean, you want that thing as a ring so you can just, so you can just grab onto that thing, right? If it gets anywhere near you, you're, you're, you're grabbing onto it. What's the second most obvious thing that every life preserver better be able to do? Thank you. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner right there. It better float, right? I mean, if you can't hold on to things, if it's made of spikes, you're a bad life preserver maker, right? Vaseline. Don't put Vaseline on a, on a life preserver. And if it doesn't float, you know, you toss it out and it's just all, you're like, no, you know. Those two things, if, if you don't have either of those two things, it negates it even from being a discussion of a life preserver. Take it off the wall and just throw it away. Use it, you know, use it as a knickknack or something. It's pointless. 
Think about that as a Christian. Should a Christian have faith? Absolutely. We are called to a life of faith. Read your Bible. It's all through the whole thing. Should a Christian have actions that bear out that faith? Absolutely. I was reading the Old Testament this week a little bit, and I was, I was just thinking about how bizarre it would be if you put yourself in the Old Testament as a modern-day Christian, and God said, go over to here, to this land, and I'm going to dispossess this people and do this and that. And you just sang songs about travel and marching on the road and how we're following Yahweh and all that, and you stayed in the same place? That's bizarre. That would make for a totally different story. Now, the Israelites still had issues following, right, and, and, and obeying the commands of the Lord. But fundamentally, they got up and did things. They went and acted on what they said that they believed. Now, question for you that you can write down if you'd like is this. Does your faith float? So, Christian, when I, when I talk about when I talk about uh, a life preserver, it has to have at least those two things. As a Christian, if you don't have at least those two things, James puts it pretty bluntly. You've been taken out of the picture of even being discussed as a Christian. You've removed yourself from the conversation if you don't have one or the other. Here's the second thing that Professor Life Preserver teaches us. Here it is. One is that it, it meets needs. Now, if you, if you take this life preserver and apply it to our situation here, uh, let's just modernize the illustration James uses. You're walking along. You see someone who's clearly drowning and in need of help, right? You happen to be next to this particular wall, right? Here you are, and you see this person. Uh, the person in James's example is in close enough proximity to speak to them. So it's not like he's reading a news article or sees a postcard or watches on TV some faraway problem. He's close enough to, to, to speak to the person, which means he's close enough to engage the need. Now, you call out to the person. You say, God is our rock and able to save to the uttermost. The person's like, okay, they're still flailing here, but mind you. What you've just said is theologically true. It's still questionable right now whether that's helpful or not, but it's theologically true. You've called out a truth to that person. Now, if you call that out to that person and say to that person that that's a truth that God can save and we should cling to him as a rock, and then you walk away, right? And then later on, you go to your community group that night and you share with, with, your, with your, you know, your, your peeps. You're like, hey, just had a great day. Got to share the love of God you know, with a stranger and... I think we should pray for this guy. You know, he seemed, seemed like he was in a lot of trouble. If, if you are praying or pronouncing blessing on someone, instead of simple obedience in helping the person, you're missing it. I mean, I could just see someone, you know, standing there. Hey, I'll pray for you, right? Keep your head up, you know, hang in there, wink, wink. I mean, it's like, no, don't do any of that. Stop praying. Stop pronouncing blessing on me. Toss me that thing right there. That's all I need from you right now. I don't want you to pray for me later. I don't want you to bring this need to a prayer chain. Help me. Here's the question for you. Does your faith care enough to share? You cannot, Christian, possess the Spirit of God and go through life uncaring, unmoved by need, unmoved with an unmerciful spirit. That's the very spirit that God has for us. Here's the third one. Life preservers show us how faith and action intersect. It's a really cool thing to think about as you toss someone a life preserver and it lands right next to them and the person in the water now, okay? The person in the water is saying, I believe, I believe! And they're just waving their hands like they're in worship. What's the guy on the land do? Fantastic. <laughs> grab it, right? Get your hands down and grab the thing wonder how many people have been drowning and are still in trouble, just waving their hands about how they believe. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I signed a card. I shook Billy Graham's hand. Whatever it might be for you, but you never took hold of it. You never put on Christ. That's the beauty of faith and action together, is that you don't just believe it, in your head, propositionally spoken, but instead you latch on and you hang on for dear life 
till the end. James says it this way, I will show you my faith by my works, by what I do. And that mirrors his half-brother Jesus, who was mighty in word and mighty in deed. Didn't come just talking a lot or just doing a lot. He gave us truth and he showed it by the way that he lived. Here's the question for you this morning. Does your faith work? Now, just by way of review, looking back, some of you are new uh, to, to James with us, so you'll see a little Western theme going on when you walk in and sprinkled throughout here a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit ago about, about a hearer and a doer of the word, and I, I threw this slide up, and I, I, I just asked the question, spot the real cowboy, right? And as you look at those pictures, what you realize is I don't have enough information, right? I just see pictures of people. Those could be models or those could be real cowboys. I don't really know yet. And so we ran through kind of a, a, a series of things. You know, playing horseshoes or giving a horseshoes, we start to get a picture of who the real cowboy is, right? Um, next one is, you know, sitting on a fence smiling or fixing the fence. A little bit different, right? Um, dressing the part or living the part. Start to get a picture of who the cowboy is. Pretend or real, right? And you could just lay on there Christian things that we do with that. We pose with our Bible, right? We dress the part. We talk the part. We even pretend and practice with padded mats around in our small groups. Let's role play sharing Jesus with someone. Let's role play coming across someone who's down in a ditch like the Good Samaritan. What would we do? All the while driving past people in ditches. Sometimes God makes it really simple for you. Um, I was driving one time, I think I've told this before, but I was driving one time with my brother-in-law, and, uh, and we had, we had this, this gas uh, can in our car filled with gas. We had just gone and gotten gas for something. I, think, I, I don't even remember what it was for, but we're driving around. We, we don't do this very often. We don't make a habit of this. We're driving along, and right near uh, Saratoga in 85, we, we, we passed this guy going the other way, and he's in full leathers. He's in one of those like speed racer bikes, and he's pushing his bike along like this, walking. It's about 90 degrees. My, brother's a, my, my brother-in-law's a Christian. I'm a Christian, and we sat there, and we, we had to check our bracelet. We're like, WWJD. I think he'd probably give the guy some gas. It was so cool. It was just this cool light bulb moment. Like We're like, well... We've got gas in our car in a gas tank. We see a guy with no gas. Popped to you, he poured, you know, gave him some gas, and off he went. Sometimes God makes it really simple. I think that just shows my, my stupidity, probably. God just needs to go A plus B. You know, it's just like, here, I'll make this really, really simple and clear for you. But when you start to think, and, and we, talk, we talked last week about stop, look, and listen. It applies to more than just railroad crossing. Stop, look, and listen. You really start to realize needs abound all around you. If only you'll be quick to listen and slow to speak. Here's the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is that one is saved just as they are. Just as they are, they're saved. No cleanup necessary to get into God's family. Once they're saved, they're welcomed into the family of Christ. They're nurtured and they're trained by the community. This picture right here is part of it. It's an important part to come and gather on Sundays as the people of God and worship together. But there's so much more to it through the week. Thirdly, they're engaged in using their spiritual gifts. This is the normal Christian life. You get saved and you worship God. You live and, and, and worship in community. You engage in using your spiritual gifts. Here's how we display this at this church, and we talk about it all the time. Worship and community and share. It's a path of discipleship. And it's ever-growing. And what we talk about is this. If, if we ever get to be a worship-only church with an anemic community and share component, we're not a biblically functioning church. If we thrive on community and we're all the best of friends, sometimes we pray and we invite God into some of that. We give, we give at least, you know, 4%, 5%, 10 around the holidays, right? We're an unbiblical church. And if we rush out into our communities and we're a social action church and we're going to win the world by our good work and our hard work and we leave the truth of the gospel, the wrath to come about sin, what it means to live out the one another's, we're an unbiblical church. So all three of these components are hugely important. Here's the one I think that Christian churches in America that I've seen struggle with a lot. 
It's the reality that the normal Christian life is that God gives every single believer spiritual gifting. And the normal Christian life is that you are engaged and employing that gift into the mission of, of, of the church, which is to make disciples, to go to the uttermost parts of the world, to teach them all that I've commanded, to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't all have the same gifts, but we all have gifts. Let me just, just dream with me for a second. What if, what if dreamers are dreaming in our churches? If dreamers are dreaming, then the church stops living in this kind of small, we're bound by our own ceiling living. And the roof is blown off at the possibility of what could be, not by man's limitations, but by God's greatness. What if the initiators are initiating? That means that new needs are championed and people are rallied to them. Some of you are planners. What if the planners are planning? You know what that means? That means the dreams aren't a complete nightmare mess, right? We need planners to plan and make those dreams a reality. New missions are taken on strategically with a design that will succeed. What if givers are giving? Then the amount of funds are never a problem. It's the distribution of how should we use these funds that stirs up the prayers who are praying, the encouragers who are encouraging, the servants who are serving, and on and on and on it could go. Now let me ask you a second question. What if they are not? What if they're not doing those things? What if they say, well, that's Dave's job? What if they say, well, that's Ben's job? We pay those guys, man. We pay those guys a ton of money. I mean, those guys are loaded. That's their job, right? Or the elders, or the super Christian, or the missionary. That's why I pay the missionary to do it, man. It's super hard. It's hot in Africa, right? I mean, I mean, what if we're not engaged in, our, in, our, in, our, in, in using our gifts? Those are the kinds of things that are there. Listen to Ephesians 2.8. I love how Paul marries faith and works. Listen for it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's my question for us. How are we walking? Where are we heading? Now, most weeks we've had a cowboy's dumb, which is just cowboy wisdom, straightforward talk. Here it is for this week. Destination is determined by the direction you are going, not by the intention you have. Think about that for a second. That's as simple and plain as it gets. Where you're going to end up is where you're going. It's where you're actually heading. Not by what you say you're doing, not by what you think you're doing, not by what you think you're doing on a map. You could point to all kinds of things. It's the direction that you're actually going. I don't know if you've ever been paralyzed by weakness or feeling inadequate in the things of God, but if you have, join the club. And if you have, listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul after a prayer he made to the Lord, and here's what he heard back from God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to that again. My power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Aren't you glad that Christ works through weakness? I mean, what it does is it opens it up for all of us. We think, wow, God could use me to affect eternity. That's where life begin, begins to get really, really exciting. That's the whole picture of redemption. I mean, God could use my brokenness and my past mistakes and my, my reaching and striving for love and belonging and creating a name for myself and being powerful and being respected. He could take all that jumbled mess and use it for his glory. Absolutely. In fact, that's where his glory shines the most, right? When people come along and say, man, you, you know, the fact that God could use you shows it must be God at work in you. And over and over, that's, that's what God does with us. Now, here's the reality is that many good works are simple obedience. 
If you're standing next to a wall and someone's down the beach and they see someone drowning, they say, hey, you, grab that thing and chuck it to that guy. That's it. Uh, I'm not a very good thrower. You know? uh, how do you hold it? Right? How do you get it off the wall? I could break a nail. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things that you could spin off doing. The reality is life hits us with, hey, you, a lot of times. And it's just simple obedience to be on duty and ready to go. Hey, you, clean this table. Hey, you, deliver these rocks. Hey, you, go talk to that girl over there. Hey, you, we need help with this guy who needs to move stuff into storage. You know what's great about our church? Those are all things I've said to people. I love when our congregation just says, cool, point in the direction. Where's the storage place at? And so many of us in this room over the years, we've just served together. We've just gone and done these things. What I don't get a lot of from this church, I love it, is pushback of like, well, I don't really feel called to that. I don't know if I'm led to cleaning tables. I don't really like talking to people. Sometimes that's there. But there's such a willingness to jump in and do, and I love that. Let me refer you back to a couple weeks back. We talked about loving orphans and widows in their distress. Here are six distinct things that are going on at this church. They're not landmark. They're not revolutionary. We're not trying to be cutting edge here. These are just things that God has stirred up and is moving in our church family that you can be a part of. They're over here on this wall. We left them up on purpose. Sitting in our midst today are experts in these different areas. I know you hate to be called an expert, but the truth is you know more than the rest of us, so you're the expert, okay? Here they are in a nutshell. The Africa continent is just world vision. We block, we block sponsor uh, some, some people uh, in, in Africa, a, a, a little vi- village through world vision. And many in here, 44 kids, are sponsored. They're paid money every single month to be pouring into to that mission. One of the, uh, something cool happened to me this, this last week. I was up in Folsom buying some fireworks. Uh, and, uh, and I walked up to the fireworks guy and I said, hey, listen, um, I said, I'm from San Jose. I don't really know the names of any of these things. I don't really know what they do. Can you, can you help me out? And he's like, well, it's my first day uh, in the booth here. I don't really know either. And I'm like, well, big help you are, you know. So I'm sitting there looking at it, you know, and I'm like, you know, checking this one out and different things. And, and uh, so he's ringing me up. We're, we're talking a little bit. And then I, I noticed his hat. And um, he has this hat on. It says Lakeside Church. Well, Lakeside Church is where one of my closest friends is a pastor there. And all my in-laws go there. And I, I know the church well. I've been there many times. I said, so you, you uh, go to Lakeside Church, huh? And uh, it's a pretty big church, 2,500 people or so. And I could kind of feel, you know, I can feel when you're not in the know about something and you feel that other people know something you don't. Well, there was a guy next to me buying fireworks and another few people in the booth. And I just got this wave of like, uh-oh, like something's about to, I don't even know what's going on, but something's happening right now. And he goes, yeah, he goes, um, yeah, I, I, I go there. You know, you're from San Jose. You, you know about Lakeside? I said, yeah. I said, I know a staff guy, and I know some people that, 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 that go there. And he goes, well, who, who do you know? I said, well, Sean Miller. And he goes, yeah, I'm good, good friends with Sean. He says, I'm, I'm one of the pastors there. So next to me, he says, yeah, that's our, that's our lead pastor. He, he, he's there quite a bit. <laughs> the funny thing is, I've seen the guy preach before, but with his hat on, not his bald head, I couldn't tell. I didn't, I didn't know it was him. But here's what I told him. I said, you know what? I said, uh, I said, I said you were in the field office of World Vision in Addis, in Ethiopia, about a month before my wife and I were there last summer. And then he goes, you're Wendy's son-in-law. And he kind of put the pieces together. And I said, the, I said here's what's so cool. I actually thanked him. I said, I, I, I want to thank you because you came from a really big church and this and that. And uh, I went marching into World Vision unannounced. I was trying to line up a trip to go visit our kids before that trip. And stateside, they wanted six months of paperwork and hoop jumping and all kinds of stuff that we didn't really weren't able to do so instead on the last few days of the trip on the last day of the trip actually told our driver just take me to world vision we'll see if we can't get something going on so i marched in unannounced and i said hey i'm i'm uh i'm you know a pastor in 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 uh, in california and they said oh they said we just had some people come and visit here a little team of people uh from lakeside church well how many churches are in california i don't know either but a lot right and I said, oh, was it Pastor Brad? I mean, just threw it. It just rolled out. Like, I mean, just name dropped. Like, I just knew the guy well, right? And they're like, yeah, Pastor Brad. And they rattled off four more people I had never heard of before. But I think because of that, I'm not positive, but that may have helped open this door 
Because all of a sudden, I think they thought I was the member of some big, giant, powerful church. And so they, they took me around, and the guy gave me like half an hour of his time just going around introducing. I showed you guys a picture of where your packages go when we send things to our kids. And here's a little cubby hole of our area. And here's the, you know, the, the, the 14 people working the, the mail room there. And it was so cool to see people really care in that organization. They were so moved. All the bashing about America, let me tell you this, they were so moved by Americans. They said 14, 20, 26, I don't know, how, tons of other countries helped do this, but without the U.S., this thing doesn't go. That's what they said. I said, wow, what a great report to bring back. So thank you on behalf of that. If you want to get involved in that, it's not too late. That's just a tip of the iceberg. It's a, it's a way to say, now I know the need. Now I have a channel and a funnel to be able to help with that. I'm going to choose to help. That's World Vision. Love, Inc., uh, is just meeting needs locally. Rich Henderson, who's not here today, heads that up for all of, of Santa Clara County. It's a way to just meet needs. Um, foster care, we, we talked about. There are, I don't even know how many. What's the stats on uh, number of kids in foster homes tonight in Santa Clara County, roughly? 2,000. Right here, Santa Clara County. Kids that are in need. Uh, orphan care. Jonathan, when's the next Mexico trip? A couple weeks. What? July 29th. See, those who are going know it immediately. July 29th, we're going down for the second time this year. Ways to connect, ways to pour in, ways to step out, ways to act. Um, international students, we have the opportunity next month in August to go and welcome 300-some international students from literally around the world that will be uh, right at, at De Anza College up in, up in Cupertino, a, a short freeway drive away. And we'll have the opportunity to, to, to welcome the the foreigner, and befriend them, and adoption. We just had, uh, I don't see Clink here today either, but we just had someone come home uh, from the other side of the U.S. Uh, with a brand new baby daughter, Sarah, who's been joined to our church family. Um, we just ha- I just have this vision of going into the nursery, and there's just so many different colors. You, don't, you, can't, you couldn't possibly match up parents to kids because you're like, man, around this place, we don't even know if they look like each other, but just grab a kid. I think this one goes here. <laughs> All right, for new parents, now I happen to know, I happen to know there's some people here who are relatively new. We don't really run our children's ministry that way, okay? So you can leave your kids. We're very up to date on that, but that's still kind of a cool picture. Um, Let me close with this. What does it say about what you think about God? What does it say about what you think about God if you sing loudly you proclaim theology very precisely to people and you walk out and in your heart of hearts what, what, what you know is that you don't obey the commands of the Lord. I mean, what does that say about the God you proclaim to love that you sing so loudly and proudly that you exude so well on a Sunday morning worship that maybe you even study up well on and talk about often to people, but you do not obey the commands that he has. Maybe worse yet is rather than ignoring the commands completely, maybe worse yet is that you go out and you perform for people. In other words, you kind of half-heartedly do the commands when you think other people are watching. I thought about this from a parent's perspective. What I thought was this. I thought, what if I was sitting in one corner of a room And we had company in the other room. And I gave a command to one of my children to go do something. And because they were there being seen by their people and they were within earshot, they said, sure, Dad. Get right on it. And the second they were out of sight of that, even within full view of me, they just went about their business. What would that say about me as, as a dad? How would that make me feel as a parent? probably stir up a lot of kinds of things. But one of the things that would be clear to me is this. Wow, A, this kid doesn't respect me. B, this kid doesn't love me. And I know we don't always think in terms of that, kids, that when we obey our parents, we're actually showing a love for them. And when we obey our parents, we're actually showing a love for God. But that's what it is. Listen to Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Band, come on up. We're going to sing a little bit more. And I just left you an open space for action. Notice in the word action, look at your bulletin for a second. 
The word act and the word on is on there. Act on. What are you going to act on based on what you heard today? Based on what we've sung today? Based on what God has maybe stirred in your own heart? Interesting that connecting those two words is the letter I. What will I act on? That's action right there. There it is. Here's my, here's my encouragement to you. Lest you think to yourself, well, I could never um, start an orphanage. I don't know the first thing about foster care or getting outside my comfort zone to really talk to people in, in need. I don't know how to start an organization that would be strategic in helping this side of the earth thing. My challenge to you is this. What, whatever the next step is for you, take it. For some of you, I think the next step might be this. Maybe you've been coming here, or maybe you've you started to come, or maybe this is your first time coming. Sometimes the next step is, you know what? There's very few places in my week where I really sit under the Bible's teaching and just open my heart and mind. I'm going to commit an hour and 15 minutes every single uh, week to coming here and just worshiping God. I'm going to sing. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be present. That might be the next step for some of you. Some of you are mature believers, and you're saying, God, what is it that you have for me? Don't let me get in a rut. Where are you leading me? What are you calling me to? What's the next step? Whatever that next step is, that's my challenge to take it. Write it down. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. I thank you for the truths that we sing over and over, the reality, God, that we aren't living our lives in payback mode. We're not working for you. We're not working for your approval. And yet, God, the lyric we just sang, that Jesus, you'd be our everything. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I pray, God, that you would be the center of everything that we do. I pray, God, that if we've gotten off kilter in our marriage, that it would begin at home, placing you in the center of our marriage, our home. If we begin to, to lead our kids and, and train up our kids in the world's way rather than in the way of a Christian, let it begin there. God, if we have roommates that we're living with, I pray that we wouldn't give them the short end of the stick as we go serve others, but that we'd look to serve those in our own home. Father, and then as a church body, there are so many one another's that need to be and are being practiced in here. Would you just allow that to continue and grow all the more? And Father, for the myriads that live within a few miles of this building that haven't tasted a tiny crumb of your goodness and mercy, God, let us be the ones that will be sent out into the harvest fields with a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ. We love you. We're empowered by you. We're thrilled to be your kids. 